Hello and welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly podcast. Today on CID's Research Spotlight podcast, Ghazi Mirza, graduate student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, interviews Asim Kwaja, co-director of Evidence for Policy Design Program, who provides further insight on the work that he and EPOD are conducting, their theory of change, and the use of both quantitative and qualitative data to facilitate their findings. Thank you very much, Professor Asim, for joining us today. So starting off with our first question is, if you could please tell us about your work that you're doing in terms of the work that you're doing in EPOD, and if you can contextualize your question in terms of the work in Pakistan, and also what's the theory of change behind Great. the work? Great. Thanks. So that's a bunch of stuff, so let me answer sort of quickly. So in terms of the work, let me start with me, and then I'll talk a bit about EPOD as well. So my work very much falls into, I guess, three or four big areas. One is education. I spend a lot of time thinking about education as a problem, and a lot of my work is in Pakistan. The other big aspect of my work is public finance, tax reform, design of sort of civil service systems. And the third leg of my work would be what I would broadly refer to as institutions. You know, how do we think about engaging with institutions and also kind of political economy type of work? I think in terms of how this ties into, say, the context of a country like Pakistan, or for that matter, any country that EPOD works in, you know, we very much have this philosophy that we want researchers and practitioners slash policy actors to kind of come together as they navigate a decision-making space, a policy decision-making space. And when I say come together, I don't mean we come in as evaluators at the end of a program, but very much we come in at the very first stage when you're trying to think about what problem you even want to work on. This is even before you design the program. And so a lot of the ethos in what we do is very much that. And that ties into kind of what you think about our theory of change. Our theory of change is less about, you know, we create evidence and someone reads the evidence and then brings about change. I think that's that's nice, but increasingly we recognize that's naive. That's not how change happens. And so our theory of change very much is that we have researchers, analysts more broadly, and practitioners, policy actors sit on the same table together. And that's how change comes about. It's when you start in this kind of embedded and long-term relationship with each other. And when I think of most of my work, it's very much in the same vein. I've been working with the same set of people now for you know decades at times. And it's not that you're working on the same problem, but you develop a relationship of trust and and then you start working on continuously on new problems that, that you uncover. And so that's very much, I think, how I would say we as EPOD view our theory of change. It does lead to perhaps a slower process. We can't work on as many places at the same time, but I think that's fine. I think, you know, if this model works, then the point isn't that it's only us doing this. You can crowdsource many researchers, and EPOD has played that role as well, and often in cases where we're facilitating, we're doing some work in, for instance, Saudi Arabia, where we're facilitating other researchers to come in and engage. The similar kind of work we'd like to do in many countries where our job is to create a focal point or a network through which we can connect outside researchers or other researchers with policy actors in a particular country. And that way, even if this one project might be slower than it would be otherwise, as long as you can do many of these, you can still create impact. Perfect. And you mentioned that you've been working with some parties for maybe even a decade in the past. So who are the key beneficiaries or the stakeholders that you've been engaging with um, as part of your work? Yeah, so there's a very different sets of people. So the key beneficiaries are usually the, the population that you're trying to work with. And in our case, uh, if I think of my case, you know, it's often 
poor people of various sorts in developing countries. In my specific case, it would be, you know, parents who are trying to educate their children, citizens who are trying to get better services from the state. And so I think ultimately those are the, the sort of key beneficiary in any society. And so and that's not that different from our work. Stakeholders are different. So, so key beneficiaries are one part of the stakeholder set, but there are many other stakeholders. And stakeholders to me are, are all sorts of people who are part of converting that program into benefits to the beneficiary. Anyone who engage either directly in terms of running the program and sometimes key stakeholders tend to be people who are not directly involved but maybe indirectly getting affected. In fact, they may get affected in an adverse way, so they may end up blocking programs. And so anytime you do a design of a program, you have to take into account what I would call the political economy of that design, right? To say, look, who is likely to benefit from this program? Who is likely to lose out from this program or at least be worried about losing out? And you can't have a good design unless you make sure their concerns are addressed, right? I don't believe in kind of revolutions where you just bulldoze over certain groups. I think you really have to have designs where you try and perhaps co-opt is a, is a negative word, but you try and at least create space for each group to figure out what they will get out of something, right? And I think that's important in any reform to happen. I'm, I tend to be some fairly practical and pragmatic in that way. And so this, the stakeholder set, therefore, by definition, becomes much wider than the beneficiary set. Just building on that, do you have a specific example or a story from where you've seen evidence work yeah, I guess it's different. You can answer this in the kind of way donors like to hear, which is like, how many lives have you saved? Or what's your value for money? And, you know, and we can do that as well. And, you know, there's lots of programs, both in my own work and in EPOD, where we can do that kind of accounting. And that accounting would be, you know, you ran a program, let's say I gave a program where we gave report cards in villages and education. And what you find as a result of that is test scores in schools improve. And so you can say, well, how many kids are in those villages? And you kind of do the math and say, oh, those are the impacted beneficiaries where impact was created. You can also tell the story at a very individual level. You can also tell a story about an individual mother who, you know, by being better informed, could make a smarter decision, a more informed decision about their child's schooling option. And, and you see, you know, when you go to the field, you tend to see more of the latter because you see actually the evidence of this sort of playing out. And then when you look back at the data in this aggregate, you see evidence of the former as well. For me, though, kind of measuring impact is not necessarily just the bean counting exercise. You can do that as well. And I think it's, you know, it's worthwhile and there's important reasons we do it. But I think also measuring impact is, are you setting up a process whereby people can be empowered? Are you opening up opportunity sets for individuals? And sometimes they may not be able to access those opportunity sets, but that's still an impact. And I'll give you an example. We have a skills training program I was part of where we were imparting sewing skills for women. And this was a mass program. And, you know, the impact of the program financially is decent, but it's not like amazing. It's not that these women are becoming uber tailors and professionals in their environment. And I think it's a bit sometimes we are unfair in what we can expect. You know, for someone who's poor, who has limited time, for them to expect with the minimal amount of training to really change the world is kind of an unnatural expectation. But I think if you view it as what opportunity sets are opened up to someone, I think that's a much more powerful way of thinking about impact. But there's also a trend increasingly on giving cash and just saying, look, we don't need to train people or impart human capital, we just give them money. And I think while there's a lot of merit to that argument as well, there's also a bit of overemphasis on this impact world. Because if you measure by how much money do you have, then obviously the highest impact is going to be when I give you money. But if I increase your human capital, you'll never have quite the same impact in the immediate short run as I did by just direct cash transfers to you. So I think we need to be a bit careful in this over-obsession with like measuring impact in terms of like value for money or, or benefit over cost. I'd like to think a bit about sort of capability dimensions as well. And the nice thing also I think of this capability dimension is you might realize that the benefit isn't fully accruing because you created a capability, but there's another barrier which has to be removed. So in this case, you train women, but they're not linked to the marketplace. And so training by itself won't have much impact. 
But if you train people and you link them to the market, and actually in this project that I'm referring to, we did, you actually can quadruple the impact. And we find we can increase the returns of that training fourfold by just doing that. And so that's the way I think I'd like to think okay. of the impact. Just building on your point from accessing data, one of the problems or challenges that people in the context of Pakistan specifically often mention that accessing data is quite difficult. Is that something that you came across? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I think there's a lot of data malignment, if I will. And it's not just Pakistan, it's the world over. You know, often people will say things like data isn't available or data is bad, and therefore that's given as an excuse not to be empirical, not to be analytical. For me, data is one of those few objects in the world. It may be the only object that the more you consume of it, the better it gets. The most objects we consume, I have an apple, I eat it, uh, it's done. The apple is gone, right? So, so my sort of response will always when people say data access or data quality issues is less about the response shouldn't be, therefore, we shouldn't use it or demand it. The response is the opposite. We should demand it more and use it more. Now, I've been in a privileged position in the sense that as an academic, uh, as an academic at Harvard, often it's open doors for me that may have not been opened to other academics. So that, that's made it easier for me to access data. But at the same time, I think if you persist in organizations, I don't think access is ever the issue. I think it's a perceived quality that we put as the issue. And I'm telling you that shouldn't be an issue. So, no, I never found that to be a constraint. And also, you know, sometimes you can't get secondary data. You can collect primary data. And there's qualitative data. I think the constraint is that we don't think an analytical approach. And when I say analytical, I mean both qualitative and quantitative is feasible. Or that the bigger constraint for me, more than data, has been a learning mindset. Are we willing to experiment and learn? If we're willing to experiment and learn, the appetite and desire for data and the willingness to share data is much easier. Thank you. And in terms of your advice for policymakers out there who, for example, for operational constraints or financial constraints, they don't have the data available, what would your advice be for them? Should they just continue what they're doing, hoping for the best, or should they take a step back? And so I, I think the analogy here you should think about it is if you have a child who's trying to learn a new language, what advice would you have for them? Right. right? Would you say you don't have the full dictionary of the language or the rules of grammar? That's data for the language, Right. So you should stop trying to learn the language. That would be terrible advice to give. If we gave that advice, none of our children would ever learn how to speak a language. And so, now I'm not saying policymakers are children, but I think what I'm saying is that the best learning, the best way of improving is what children demonstrate. And one way of demonstrating that is learning languages. I mean, children are much better at learning languages than adults are. And I think the key distinction for me is that they're not afraid of the fact that they don't have data. So they act. And here's critical. This is, it's not just you act. They experiment. They act and learn. And so what I typically tell policymakers is don't be worried if you don't have data. You don't have the right answer to begin with. No one does. But at the same time, don't use that as an excuse to just do policy willy-nilly, right? And I think people often misunderstand. When I give them license to act without data, they think it's license to stop learning. That's a license I would never give anyone. I would say the one thing you have to always stick to is that you should be learning from what you're doing which means you need to set up a learning process. And once you set up a learning process, whatever data you have, you will make use of as best as you can. But over time, again, your data, as I said earlier, will improve as you use it. But also over time, you will learn how to challenge that data, right? Data isn't the end all or be all either. Theory is important. Kind of interplay between data and theory is really critical. And that's what I think this learning process like. So, so I really only fault any organization, I don't want to pick on just the public sector, I've seen private sector, non-profit sector to fall to the same problem, which is we stop learning. In fact, we go the opposite extreme. 
we set up mechanisms which prevent learning. It sounds a bit weird to say, why would you ever do that? So one easy way to see that is if you prevent dispute in your organization, if you, present a, if you have meetings where the only people who are invited to the meetings are people who agree with you, you've just stopped learning because nothing new will happen in that meeting. So I think organizationally, we really need to build in systems which encourage alternative views, which encourage discussion, dispute even, I mean, not in an unhealthy way, in a constructive way. That's a sign of learning. And for those of you people who feel smug about we're learning or not, I would ask them, when is the last time you really change your view on anything? And if you didn't, and if the answer is like more than two days ago, then you're not learning. You've mentioned qualitative data as well. Can you talk a bit about when you've used qualitative data, because that's one stream that often at times tends to get overlooked Absolutely. in research. That's a good question. Thank you. Uh, so I'm an economist. Economists don't need to be blamed. I'm a quantitative person. I run lots of regressions and do large sample analysis and things like that. So people often tend to think of us as the number guys. I think it's a mistake in the following sense. So, so they're right that when I produce for my audience, which is, in, say, an academic journal, I'm mostly going to put numbers in because that's the discourse that my, my referees and my audience is waiting for. If I were an anthropologist or a sociologist or perhaps a non-quantitative political scientist, I would have an alternative discourse, which would also be analytical, which would also bring in data, but it would be of a different kind, right? It might be qualitative data. So I want to start by saying, look, those are both very legitimate ways of doing scholarship. In policy, you can't have the luxury of being either or. You're very scrappy. You use whatever information you can, which is appropriate for the context. Even in the data world, sometimes you're doing a large end survey. Sometimes you're doing a randomized controlled trial. Sometimes you're just doing descriptive statistics and bar charts. All of this is form of data. If I think of my own work, the way I would deploy qualitative data is often when I run programs, data gives me a good average feel of what's going on. But it doesn't give me a nuance of what's happening. It doesn't tell me mechanisms or channels through which, say, an impact of a program might be happening. So I will typically team up the quantitative analysis with a qualitative understanding. That doesn't show up in my papers because that's not what my discipline is expecting to see. But if I'm trying to understand a problem, absolutely. In fact, I'll use qualitative analysis at two stages of the research production process or the policy engagement. Very early on, which is I'm trying to navigate the space and I have no idea what to work on. I'll talk to people. I have conversations. We'll write it up. We'll take field notes. We'll be almost, I mean, not as good as an anthropologist would have been or a sociologist would have been because I'm not trained in, in those disciplines. But we're trying to mimic what they would do. And then I would do my quantitative analysis, design an experimental study, run some RCT, a randomized control trial or something. And then you get results. When you get results, you know, all the results are telling you is that Y is being caused by X. It doesn't tell you why it's caused. Uh, that's much harder. And so to try and get some richness into what's happening in that relationship, how is it that when someone gets more educated, they're able to get a better job? What's the kind of, if you will, in-between steps? Do they feel more empowered? Do they just give a better interview in their job? Do they get more callbacks from their employer? Conditional on a callback, are they just more impressive in the interview? Is it just a signal that people say you have a degree, so I'll interview anyways? Is there a productive return to that? Those kind of nuances are very hard to get in a quantitative study. You can, but it, then you have to have many sub-studies to it. But a qualitative study will start giving you lots of insights into what may be happening there. And then you could bolster that with a subsequent quantitative study. So there's going to be a constant interplay between these two types of evidence. Great. Thank you. Any future research that people should look forward to coming from Dr. Asim? Yeah. yeah, there are a couple of things I'm working on, but I'm very engaged in also trying to create local capacity to produce work in the countries that I work in. In this case, I do a lot of work in Pakistan, other countries I'm beginning to work in as well. And so I'm excited about what work could be produced that I could be instrumental in facilitating. Right. I think that's a, a more powerful way for me to think about it. And there, I'm, I'm very excited about the work I'm facilitating in education. Part of it, my own work, but a, a lot of other researchers now sort of joining into that, 
and I'm hoping to expand that. You really make it easier for sort of practitioners and researchers to join in. In fact, if I would say that the thing I'm most excited about, I mean, there's lots of little projects I can talk about, but the thing I'm most excited about is, could I actually help contribute to that ecosystem, right? Could I help create a set of engagements, a set of processes, opportunities where more and more of this kind of work, research which is embedded in the act of decision-making, embedded in the world of practice, emerges. A lot of what we do in EPOD now is really thinking about how do you templatize that? How do you create that model which allows others to engage with each other? And maybe just main pieces of advice that you will give out to researchers out there. Yeah, so it's a good question. This is hard because I can only introspect. I don't have, you know, I don't have a study saying... Here's a test of six different advices, and this was the best. And so I want to give that caveat, you know, I'm an empiricist. And so when I say things which are anecdotal in some sense or intuitive, I should at least acknowledge that. So with that caveat, I think the things which I have done in my life which have worked well for me, one is I've never compromised kind of on the question that I'm working on. I chose research because I was passionate about what I do. And, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't be strategic, but you don't maximize appeasing others. You know, you don't do research where you say, I'm going to maximize publishing papers subject to having an intellectual excitement. I do the opposite. I want to maximize what I enjoy doing, which is in some deep level just solving problems, subject to producing. I'm not naive about that. So, you know, when you, when you go this line again, you shouldn't be silly. You shouldn't say, oh, I'll just do whatever I want to do and not worry about publishing or not worry about strategic partnerships or sharing my work. Of course you should do that. That's not what you say. In consumer optimization, you know, we distinguish between what's a constraint and what's a utility function. Make solving problems and getting passionate in your utility function and everything else is a constraint you have to satisfy. So that's kind of the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, you know, research is a very lonely act. There are really moments where you get sort of really depressed about what you're doing. You question whether what you're doing is valuable and everyone faces that. I mean, you'd be surprised how many brilliant people are still insecure. And that's just a natural act of, there's nothing wrong with that. Get comfortable with that, but more importantly, surround yourself by people who can support. I mean, that's true in life in general. You surround yourself by people who can positively support you in that act. So the companionship you keep is important. And I don't necessarily mean other professionals. Sometimes your support group may not be co-academics. It may be another set of people who really value what you're doing and kind of buck you up when you're in those lows. And so I think that would be the, the sort of second piece of advice I would give. I think that's it. Makes sense. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Asim, for your time. And for the audience, if you would like to learn more about ePod or Dr. Asim's work, you can visit their website on epod.cid.harvard.edu. If you want to learn more about CID's research and events, please visit cid.harvard.edu. See you next week.